currently reading an excellent book titled Reading the Gospels Wisely. Now I'm partial. Uh, the book was written by my friend Jonathan Pennington. As he begins, he emphasizes a very important point. If we don't pay attention to the genre, the style, uh, the literary style of what we are reading, we become susceptible to misunderstanding and misapplication. In terms of the style of the Gospels, he writes, the gospel, the message of salvation is necessarily a historical narrative. Therefore, the Gospels are to be read at least in part as proclaimed exhortational sermons. Let me give you an example. Mark the Gospel of Mark begins with the preaching of John the Baptist and ends with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And that parallels the public preaching of Peter as we see it summarized in the book of Acts. There is sufficient cumulative and circumstantial evidence to conclude that Mark did, in fact, form his gospel from the teaching and the preaching of the Apostle Peter. Papias of Hierapolis, who lived from 30, I mean from 60 to 130 AD. 60 to 130. He was born only 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, died only 100 years after. He writes that Mark wrote, was written uh, down by John Mark, the, the son of Mary of Jerusalem. And he did it as he scribed the preaching of Peter. So what you have in the Gospel of Mark is predominantly from Peter. That's why it was canonized. That's why it was included in the New Testament was that apostolic connection. Now here's my point. We need to understand that there is a big difference between poetry and prophecy. Between the Proverbs and the Gospels. I've heard people quote the Proverbs and then say, well, I know that's not true because, and then name one case. The Proverbs are not statements of fact for all things, all places, all times. The Proverbs are generalized statements that says, if you do this, in most cases, by and large, this will take place. For instance, train up a child in the way of the Lord, in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is there anybody here that knows somebody that was raised in the church, who was taught the way of the Lord, but when he got older, departed from it and never returned? I do. But for the most part, in most cases, if you bring up a child in the way of the Lord, that's going to be their basic instinct and basic patterns and their basic default when things happen. 
Our focus is on the Sermon on the Mount as it's included in Matthew's Gospel. And so it's important to remember that Matthew chose, in fact, to write a Gospel. He chose to write a historical account of Jesus' life, but one that pays particular attention to key incidents and key teachings. And that's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though they have most of the same things, they differ at points, and all three of them differ significantly from what John chose to include. In addition to the type of writing, it's very important for us to understand the context of the passages. A word appears in a sentence. A sentence appears in a paragraph. A paragraph appears in a pericope or a chapter or a section. And that appears within a certain book which appears in a certain type of writing. And all of that needs to be considered. I've shared with you how you can take verses from the Bible and make them say anything if you rip them out of context. We've got to make sure that we are, as Paul said to Timothy, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, Matthew, in order for us to get the full scope of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to remember that Matthew's primary focus was to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed king of the, from the lineage of David who's ushering in his kingdom. And the sermon is an important starting point for that message. Additionally, as I already pointed out, we need to remember that Matthew is intentional of his portrayal of Jesus as the new Moses. The fulfillment of actually Moses' promise in Deuteronomy 18 when Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And remember what Jesus said? Pointing back to Moses. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I too must be lifted up before all men. But as we've already looked specifically at the framing, we made note exactly how we need to listen to Jesus. That is, we should read these words, the Sermon on the Mount, in the context that's given by Matthew. When he points out in chapter 4 that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now I'm going to get on a little bit of a soapbox here. I usually do that when I step out here, don't I? Gospel, good news... In the Bible is not used in conjunction with salvation. That's a tough one. 
Because it is good news that we are saved. Very good news. But the good news is always spoken of in connection with the kingdom. <coughs> there are a lot of people out here who fully believe that they are saved. And have no connection with the kingdom. They don't darken the doors of a church anywhere. They don't find themselves with a small group even. Having a house worship. They somehow believe that they can go it on their own. And that's not scriptural. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And as he concludes the sermon... We also need to hear his own emphasis that you and I need to understand how to be wise doers of what we read and hear. We cannot be just hearers only. Now, ladies, I'm going to call on you because you are probably more in tune than some of the guys, although... I am a, a rarity in this, and that's it. I was mama's boy, and so I grew up in the kitchen learning to cook. But there are some procedures that you can read in a recipe, and you can talk, speak that recipe right back very accurately. But until you have actually done it, it's a different thing, isn't it? Sift flour. I don't see very many of those devices that we used to have where you put the flour in a container and you, you did it like this with the other hand. Fluff an egg. I guarantee you there's a lot of people that have no idea of what it means to fluff an egg. You can know those words. But actually doing it, putting it in practice, that's a different thing. And there are a lot of people who believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, who don't know one bit about what it means to having Him as the Lord of their life. And the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. But they're not saved. Back in 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote what turned out to be a classic, a book titled On Death and Dying. Recently, it was reissued again. That's how much of a classic it is. She talked about the stages of grief. I want you to know that since Wednesday night, I am still basically in the stage of grief known as shock. A dear lady died that was very close to me. Or she's dying. She will officially die in May of 24. Lincoln Christian University, once known as Lincoln Christian College when I was there, 
Lincoln Bible Institute, when my dad attended, made the announcement that they will close the door at the end of the school year in May of 24. They are merging, fortunately, with Ozark Christian College down in Joplin, Missouri, uh, which basically uh, most of the leadership of that school were trained at Lincoln. But I've started reminiscing. I loved Marion Henderson. I think he was still away during your days, or had he come back already? Okay. He left Lincoln for a while and became the president of, of Florida Christian College for 10 years and then returned. He was not only one of my mentors in terms of understanding the New Testament, uh, but I looked up to him because he was one of few men that I knew that when he came to worship, he didn't carry an English Standard Version or a Revised Standard Version or a King James Version. He carried his Greek New Testament. But probably more important than that, he was also a good friend and a good friend of my father's. And I guess even more important than that in terms of my feelings is that he, along with Lynn Laughlin, were my baseball coaches in college. So we called him Doc and we called Lynn Coach. In his class notes, I went back and I was looking, and in his class notes, as well as in memories that others have mentioned over the last few days, Dr. Henderson said that the Beatitudes that we examined last Sunday are what Jesus defined as the characteristics of the kingdom person. If you want to know what a Christian should look like, if you want to know what a true believer should look like, look again at the Beatitudes. See, what Jesus says, not only in the Beatitudes, but in the sermon, is to be thought of actually as a proclamation of the approaching kingdom that he said is near. It's how Jesus clarifies for the disciple what lies beyond the call to repent. There are a lot of preachers who are proclaiming a false gospel. Salvation is not found just by praying the sinner's prayer or by signing the last page of a tract possibly called the Romans Road. Salvation begins with the hearing of the word, but it includes repenting of our previous lives of sin. It includes confessing Jesus publicly as our Lord and Savior of our life. It includes, as a part of that confession, our public baptism, by which, according to the Apostle Paul, we've died to sin and we refuse to live in it any longer. It's the manner in which we are baptized into Christ, baptized into His death, 
Paul says in Romans 6, 4, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that... That's a purpose statement. We were baptized for the purpose that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's a very important difference from the proclamation that being saved by grace alone means you don't have to do anything else. No. It means that you have to do everything else. We are to be different. We're to make a difference. Do you believe you are making a difference in your home? Do you believe you're making a difference in your neighborhood? Do you believe that you're making a difference here in the church where you worship? Are you making a difference? Another a friend of mine from LCC days, uh, the early 70s, Danny Dye, actually in a book honoring Dr. Henderson, has written that the church will be ineffective and useless if we believe that we're not making a difference. And I think that's a good segue into our text for today. Just four verses. Verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let your light so shine so that people who are looking at you did you hear Rich's devotion? Preparation for our communion? That burning desire to make a difference in the place where he works where he is the only Christian that he knows of. And I can tell you this he is because he shared with me one day about a guy who came up to him at work and said, you're different. Why? And he was able to tell him about his relationship with Jesus Christ. John Stott writes, if the Beatitudes describe the essential character of the disciples of Jesus, which I already demonstrated through Marion Henderson, that that's, a, that's what they do, the salt and light metaphors indicate their influence for good in the world. Influence. Making a difference. But can we make a difference? 
You see, the very notion that Christians can exert a healthy influence in the world should cause us to sit up and take notice and listen closely. And yet people will say, what possible influence could the people described in the Beatitudes exert in this hard, tough world? What lasting good can the poor and the meek do? The mourners and the merciful and those who try to make peace, not war. What would they not simply be overwhelmed by the flood tide of evil? What can they accomplish whose only passion is an appetite for righteousness and whose only weapon is purity of heart? Are not such people too feeble to achieve anything, especially if they're a small minority in the world? It's evident that Jesus thought so. He certainly didn't share this skepticism, and nor should we. Rather, the reverse is what is made clear. The world will undoubtedly persecute the church. That's the nuts and bolts of verses 10 to 12. If you're not being persecuted, you need to re-examine your faithfulness. Yet the message of our text for today is that the, the church's calling is to serve the persecuting world. Being a Christian isn't a spectator sport. I hope you didn't come here today to be entertained. And yet I hear people all the time, especially when they go to churches where they have the fabulous music programs and, and the charismatic speakers. I hear people just talking about what they experienced. I also hear people sometimes, I don't hear it coming out of here because you don't want me to hear it. But I've heard people coming out of churches other places say, I didn't get a thing out of the service today. And I'm going to tell you, you know me. I have un graciously, not so tactfully, turned and said to them, well, maybe you didn't put anything into the service. Because if we're not getting anything out of a worship service, no matter how poor the preacher might be, it's because we didn't put anything into it. You see, the bottom line is that discipleship means mission. Jesus' final words to his disciples that we know of as the Great Commission was beginning with a participle, not a command. As you are going into all of the world, because he knew the disciples had to leave that mountain and get back to work. As you are going into all the world, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But it doesn't stop there. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. How much of what He's commanded? All. All. There have been various interpretations as exactly what the salt and the light metaphor mean. Uh, Pincus Lapid, the Jewish scholar that I've been reading, said that he thinks that these are particular to Israel 
and the Gentiles. That salt of the earth, or that word he says should be land, referring to the nation of Israel, the land, uh, and world, cosmos, that's the rest of it, the Gentiles. Uh, here's what I know. There's been a lot of debate as to what the salt is. I've heard about how salt preserves and therefore we need to be preserving. I've heard how salt adds flavor and therefore we need to be adding flavor. Here's the point. Regardless of how you interpret those two metaphors. One thing that can't be disputed is that as a follower of Jesus, we are summoned to a mission on behalf of and for God in this world. And impact results from being missional. We can sit in this building all day long 300 of the 365 years, staring at our belly buttons, trying to be holy and not accomplish anything. It's when we go out those doors and we start putting the words of Scripture into action that we are doing what the Bible has called us to do. It's about being missional. The Bible tells the story of, of basically salvation in terms of redemption. What's God's mission? From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, God's mission is to bring the world back that fell and went away. Revelation says it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't even say we're going to heaven. It says He's bringing the new heaven and the new earth to us. But it's about being in that renewed relationship. It's the imagery, in fact, go read Revelation 21 and 22. And don't read it with the idea of... of flamethrowers and helicopters and things going on in the Mideast. Read it in terms of what it means in terms of God's judgment. And the imagery of the final chapters are the imagery of a new Garden of Eden. The river of life flowing and those trees, the tree of life, they're right back there again in Revelation. God's plan is to redeem the earth and you and I are to be a part of that. Bringing people back into relationship with God. Bringing people back into a relationship with the earth on which we live. And that mission, secondly, includes all peoples. All nations. I, in the last six years, have heard people make some of the most prejudicial statements and bigoted statements that I've ever heard in my life. And no, not about blacks, although some of those have been said and made. 
we share, Rich and Cindy and Jesse and I share one thing in common. Uh, we both have a son-in-law that is black and a very good man in both cases. I now have a daughter-in-law who is mixed. Eric's wife, Taylor, is mixed. And I'm scared to death about bringing them around some people for fear that those people will make some kind of make statement about, well, those people of color. But the statements I've heard in this area in the last six years, the racial bigoted statements that I've heard have been about the Latinos. And you better drive around this town and look at who's fixing up the homes, rebuilding the homes, and who's letting them run down before you make any of those statements. The mission that you and I are on include all peoples, all nations, the earth, the world. And if you notice, James... I'm going to pass you out next Sunday, by the way, a copy of all of the similarities between James and the Sermon on the Mount. I'm more impressed now that James is writing what is called a Jewish commentary on the Sermon on the Mount than, than I've ever been. But James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We are to let our lights so shine, let them shine in such a manner, it assumes that our light is going to be shining. He didn't say if you're the light. He didn't say if you're the salt. He said you are the salt, you are the light. And John Nolan says that what the challenge is for you and I to live out in the public arena what we claim to be intrinsically, internally. So let me ask you, do you think we, as a church or even individually, are in fact impressing anyone by what we're doing? And that leads me to my final point. We should not overlook the stress, the emphasis that Jesus places on the danger of a diminished witness. The passage comes with a powerful warning. The warning concerns the possibility of our witness being diminished. You are the salt, Jesus said, but... If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. In terms of the metaphor, when Jesus was using it, what they did with salt that wasn't salty anymore was they just threw it out on the dirt path so that at least there'd be some grit and they wouldn't be slippery. With light... Jesus spoke less about judgment and more about how difficult it is to comprehend someone lighting something up just so that they could hide it. But the image, let me go back to the image of salt. That phrase, thrown out, that same word 
is used in the Gospel of Matthew in connection with judgment in at least five other places, such as thrown into the fire, thrown into prison, thrown into hell. They threw the bat away. And the command to throw them into the blazing furnace? You see, Jesus' language is intentional. His words are chosen to warn us as His followers of the consequences of allowing our impact to be in any way lessened. Saltless salt is thrown away and covered lights are useless. Listen, if we damage the impact that we already have, that impact may never be regained. You know. Go talk to some of the people that left here during this problem or that problem or, or what was happening during this time of play. I've been told. I won't return there. Not as long as You see, the impact was lost in those particular cases by choices that were bad choices. Biblically speaking, there are consequences for those who are unfaithful to God's covenant blessings. The writer of Hebrews provides at least five passages that can be deemed as warning passages. Beginning with chapter 2 when he says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Paul writes in 2 Timothy about Hymenaeus and Philetus who had swerved from the truth. Not to mention how already in 1 Timothy he instructed Timothy about Hymenaeus and Alexander needed to be handed over to Satan in order for them to learn not to blaspheme. So here's my challenge. It's well past time for us to truly hear the commands to be different. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be intimidated. But be willing to be salty. Be willing to let your light shine. Because in reality, these are simply the direct result of our being faithful. And rich... I had no way of knowing where you were going with your devotional. But I promise you, I didn't aim this sermon right at you. Let's pray. Father God, help us. Help us to be willing to be bold in our witness. To take a stand. To be different, to be peculiar people even. Separated in terms of our behavior, though not in terms of our geography. Because if we're not around non-Christians, we can never win, win them for you and your kingdom. Use us to this end, Father, please. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.